I wanted you guys uh, to know, I want to let you know, um, many of you have been following uh, the treatment of David Chavon, who was diagnosed a couple years ago with cancer. Uh, David and Wendy got some really hard news this last week. Uh, David had been in the process of recovering from treatments, uh, but in the last month, his strength and his health have really been declining. So they went down to MD Anderson and found out David's cancer has uh, grown dramatically. Uh, it has metastasized now and is attacking his spine, which is why he was losing feeling and strength. So uh, a number of you don't know David. David is our administrative pastor here at Grace Bible Church. He's been serving with me for a couple years, but he, he's been out a lot because of cancer. And now this is definitely a real blow to David and Wendy. Uh, they've been down at MD Anderson now for about a week. They're going to be there indefinitely as David undergoes some really significant treatment for this uh, cancer that's really growing. So please be lifting them up in prayer. This has uh, really been a pretty hard week for our church. There are not only the Siobhans, but many of our families uh, are, are struggling and suffering from cancer. We also lost a number of people this week. There's a number of funerals going on. And I, I wonder, how, how do I preach a sermon in the midst of that? I would really rather us just sing all morning. That's like the only thing that kind of brings relief to some of the, the pain and suffering of life in this world, this broken and painful world. There is an advantage, though, that God gives us in a time of suffering like our church is going through right now. I'm reminded of the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Solomon says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Difficult, painful times, suffering like many in our church are going through right now are an opportunity for us to be drawn closer to the Lord and ask the questions that really matter in life. Above all else, the the question of questions, Lord God, why are we here? God, why are we here on the planet Earth? Why in the world have you left us on this sin-stained, cursed rock? Why are we here? Why don't you just take us to heaven? Why do you leave us here in the midst of so much pain and suffering? God, why am I here? What is my purpose on Earth? What is so important that you have left us here on Earth? It's perhaps one of the most important questions we'll ask in life. Fortunately, the Lord gives us a great answer in the passage I want us to look at this morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, passage that is just so appropriate for what our church is going through right now. Perfect passage for us to look at. We're going to look starting in Matthew 5, verse 13. Jesus reveals to us why God has chosen to leave us in this painful suffering, difficult earth, why he has left us here in this world. He reveals the answer to us in the form of two metaphors, two images that are familiar to us. This is a familiar passage, but I think it's often underappreciated. So we're going to dig into it and look at it in more depth this morning. Start in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I'd like us to to go into more depth in these two images. This, This is stuff we've heard before. You are salt and light. But let's look in detail. What does Jesus mean by calling us salt and calling us light? Let's start with that first metaphor. What does it mean to to be salt? Let me give you a little background. In the ancient world, salt was much more important than it is today. 
Salt isn't that big a deal to us. We don't think about it every day. In the ancient world, they did. Especially in in ancient Israel, salt was a necessity of life. It was an incredibly valuable commodity. Uh, Salt was used, uh, number one, as a seasoning. You didn't have lots of seasonings. Ancient Israelites didn't have a pantry they could go to full of all these different seasonings and spices and rubs and sauces and all the stuff we use to flavor our food. They just had salt. That was it. If if you don't have salt, then your food is bland. They had no other options to turn to. Uh, Food is really, really bland without any seasonings. If you've ever cooked a chicken breast and not put anything on it and tried to eat it, it's pretty awful. Well, that's what food was for them. It was awful unless you had salt. Salt made food palatable. It gave it flavor so that you could eat it. Second thing salt was used for in the ancient world was a preservative. Remember, we're talking about a world with no refrigeration. There's no way to refrigerate something. If you want to save meat, your only option is to put salt on it. Salt was the only preservative they had. They didn't have all the fancy chemicals we have today. If they didn't put salt on something, it would immediately start to decay, especially meat. It wouldn't last long at all. They wouldn't be able to make it through a famine or something like that without salt. Salt preserved food. Those were the two big purposes of salt in the ancient world. A seasoning, really the only seasoning, and a preservative was also used to clean newborns when they were born. You rubbed them down in salt. It was used in religious ceremonies for the Jews at the temple as part of the sacrificial system. It was used in legal arrangements. When you ratified a covenant, you exchanged salt. Salt was an incredibly important necessity in the ancient world. And Jesus is saying, we are the salt of the earth. Now, the the English idiom is not at all what he means. Salt of the earth in our language means a common person, a normal person. That's not at all what Jesus means. By salt of the earth, I, I don't think he's saying you are the flavoring of the earth or you are the preservative of the earth that keeps it from decaying. I don't think he's looking at any one particular use of salt. I think he's looking at them all. In the ancient world, salt was a source of indispensable good. It was an incredible blessing to mankind, and that's what God has designed us to be, salt in the world, a source of indispensable good to this planet. But notice where Jesus goes in the metaphor after that. Salt is only valuable if it remains salty, if it stays salty, if it keeps its flavor. Now, uh, that is kind of a weird point to us. Um, our salt doesn't go bad. That's because we have pure salt, pure sodium chloride. If you go to your pantry, your salt is pure. Their salt was not pure. They got salt from the Dead Sea, a large body of water on the eastern side of Israel. You had water that came into the Dead Sea, but there was no place for that water to go. So it just sat and baked under the hot sun of the Mediterranean until the water evaporated and left behind lots of mineral deposits, one of which was salt. So the Israelites would go out and they would gather the powder that was left behind and they would use it as their salt, but it was only partially salt. There's all these other minerals in it. And, and they would take this salt and if that salt that they collected, if it ever got moist or got wet, the first thing to leach out of it would be the sodium chloride, the salt. It would leave behind a, a bunch of chemicals that don't taste at all like salt, don't work like salt. They were neither a seasoning nor a preservative anymore. It was worthless. That's Jesus' point. If salt loses its taste, its distinctive flavor, that sodium chloride taste that makes it taste good to you, if it loses that, then it's worthless. All you can do with it is throw it away. You you shouldn't even keep it. There's no good in salt that loses its saltiness. Well, Jesus's concern for us is that as the salt of the world, we would remain salty. 
we would keep the thing that keeps us distinctive in this world, that makes us stand out as a a flavoring, as a preservative, as a source of great good in this world. That's what Jesus is challenging us to do in this metaphor. Be salt that is flavorful. Be salt that is distinctly salty. But what does that mean? How do we become flavorful salt in this world? How do we be salty people? Well, we've got to look at the context. We are reading a very small passage in a much larger sermon from Jesus that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, one of the most significant bodies of teaching of Jesus' whole ministry. This is, this is perhaps his grandest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I want to point out, let me, let me show you a few passages. Let's just look at the Sermon on the Mount for a moment and get a, a feel of it. Let me read a few uh, excerpts to you from the Sermon on the Mount to give you a sense of it. Let's go to the beginning. Beginning of chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. The Sermon on the Mount begins with something we call the Beatitudes. We're going to be talking about those later this semester. But just look at verses 3 and 4 for an example of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So you have a number of blessing pronouncements like that. Then Jesus turns and he he gets to commands. He begins to lay out some commands. Let's just look at a few of them. Look at verse 27 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, Move forward, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, Let's jump forward into chapter 6. Look at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you know that it is an incredibly convicting sermon. Jesus goes through and lays out these incredible commands of utter righteousness that are, that are incredibly convicting, incredibly difficult. Let's talk for just a second about the Sermon on the Mount. Kind of step back and ask, what's going on with the Sermon on the Mount? Why was it given? Okay, let's, let's say right off the beginning, right off the bat, the Sermon on the Mount is not instructions for how to get to heaven. Sermon on the Mount is not a list of things you do to merit God's love, to get into heaven when you die. If that was the case, we would all be absolutely without hope. We would be doomed if the Sermon on the Mount was the way to get into heaven. Look at the commands we just read. Do any of us perfectly obey these? I know I don't. I know I've fallen short of many of these commands in the course of my life. If this was my way to get into heaven, I would be without hope. I would be doomed. Okay, so it's not the way into heaven, but this Sermon on the Mount, it's also not to be meant as, as a test of my salvation. A lot of believers take it that way. A lot of people say, okay, well, I get into the kingdom of God, I get into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, but once I'm in, once I'm one of his children, the way that I stay a child of God or prove that I am a child of God, prove it to others, prove it to myself, is by obeying the Sermon on the Mount. If that's true, then yet again, I'm doomed. I'm without hope if this is a test of my salvation. If the Sermon on the Mount is how I stay saved or how I prove saved, then I'm lost because the standard is too high. If this is a test, all of us fail. Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be a test of my salvation. It's not meant to be the way that I get to heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is a revelation of the king's goal for his people. 
That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is the goal of the king for his people. Remember we said about a month ago when we started this series, Jesus came to earth as king, as the promised Davidic king. And as king, he laid out for his people in the Sermon on the Mount, his people of which we are, we are the people of Jesus, followers of Jesus, we're part of his kingdom. He laid out for us his expectations, his desires, his goal for what his people will be like. The Sermon on the Mount reveals to us how should people act who are part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ? What should be the qualities, the characteristics of their lives? What should be the behaviors, the attitudes, the values that set them apart as part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ? It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's a goal that none of us will ever perfectly reach in this life. The Sermon on the Mount is perfection. It's absolutely being like God, perfectly holy, but it sets the goal for us. Our goal in this life is to live out the ethic, the values, the attitudes and behavior of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as we do that, when you look at the particulars that we read in the Sermon on the Mount, if you live this out, you will be unlike everyone else. That's really the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. When you read it, you think, oh my gosh, this is so otherworldly. This runs so contrary to everything I see in my world. In this world, it's not, it's not those who mourn who are blessed. No one wants to mourn. It's those who are happy, those who are entertained who are blessed. Jesus says, no, those who mourn. In our world, it's enough not to commit adultery against your spouse. And yet Jesus says, no, that's not enough. You, you can't even look at another person with lust in your heart. In our world, it's enough to love those who love you, love your family, love your friends. Your enemies, just don't kill them and you're okay. But Jesus says, no, you need to love your enemies. You need to pray for them and hope for them. In our world, everything runs contrary to the Sermon on the Mount. If we practice the Sermon on the Mount, by definition, we become the salt that Jesus has designed us to come. We become absolutely distinct from this world. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about not being like the world, being utterly distinct from the world, doing the opposite of what the world does. How do we remain salty salt? How do we keep our flavor? By practicing the countercultural commands of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what this is about. For a lot of people, we don't know what to do with the Sermon on the Mount. Well, read, when you read it, when you study it, say to yourself, this is Jesus' goal for me. This is what he hopes for me as my king. He is leading me to become utterly distinct in this world, to be salt in this world, to stand apart in this world by doing and practicing and thinking things that run counter to the culture, to the direction of this world. Paul says a similar thing. He lays out for us a similar goal in life in a significant passage, Romans 12, 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's telling us God's goal for you in this life is to be distinct, be different than the world. Don't let yourself be conformed to this world. Don't become like this world. Don't let the the distinct flavor that you have leach out of you. Instead, be different by practicing the Sermon on the Mount, by approving, by doing those things which are good and acceptable and perfect. So the the first thing that Jesus says to us, our purpose on earth is to be salt, to have a distinctive flavor, to stand out from the rest of the world, to be different by practicing the ethics of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, by practicing the commands and values and attitudes of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's his first goal for us, to be salty salt in this world. Second goal is found in the next metaphor. 
verses 14, 15, and 16. You are the light of the world. Now, this second image that God gives us, the second metaphor, you are the light of the world, it implies that the world is in darkness. Notice it's, it doesn't say you are a light of the world. You are one of many lights in the world. No, you are the exclusive. You are the only source of light in this utterly dark world. What God wants us to understand is that apart from his people on earth, apart from leaving us here on the planet, this world would be lost in utter darkness. Now, this week, that's not hard for me to believe. Look around at the world and all the pain and suffering. We've got two wars going on. I read yesterday, there's another earthquake in Chile. Hundreds of people are dead. I look at this world and I say, yeah, this world is without hope. This world is broken. This world is lost in sin. And there are no other lights. I see all that they're trying to do in Washington to fix the problems of this world. Great, guys, try your best. But guess what? You're not a light. You can't fix what's broken in this world. There is no hope in this world apart from us. We are the hope of the world. We alone are the source of light in this world. Without God's people here, without God's kingdom on earth through us, there would be no light in this world. Everyone on the planet would be lost in utter darkness apart from us. We are the light of the world. That's why God has left us here, because without us, this world would be lost in darkness. But how do we serve as lights in this world for God? How do I function as a useful, bright light in this world? Well, the passage gives us a few steps. How do I serve as a useful light? Well, number one, I have to know the one true light of the world. Reality is we're not born onto this planet as lights, I don't come out of my mother's womb as a spiritual light for this world. No, I'm born into the kingdom of darkness. I'm not a light. The only way for me to become a light is to know the one true light. Now, John in his gospel says a lot about Jesus being the light. Here's just one excerpt, John 1, 9 through 10. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. John's telling us there is only one true source of light in all of human history. That's Jesus Christ. Apart from the Lord Jesus coming to earth, there would be no light for anyone. We would all be lost in darkness. Jesus is light. He is the revelation of light to mankind. We actually sang about that earlier this morning. Jesus is the light in the midst of our darkness. He is the one source of light, the one source of hope, the one source of salvation in this world. The way that we become lights like him, the way that we reflect light is through relationship with him. John 12, 36, while you have the light, that is Jesus, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. We become lights ourselves. Jesus comes to live within us and to emanate light through us in this dark world once we step forward in faith. Once we believe in Jesus, that's the simple command of this, believe in the light. Believe that Jesus is who he said he was. That Jesus is the son of God who died for your sins and then rose from the dead. If you believe that good news, that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, then something radical happens to you. You are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. You become a light. God himself comes to live within you. We believe that the Holy Spirit comes to live permanently within all believers. He is a source of light to this world. We become children of light through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you're here this morning and, and you're wrestling with the gospel, you're wrestling with whether or not Jesus died for your sins, whether you can trust in his death alone for the payment of your sins, what this passage is telling you is there, there is only one hope for you. There is only one source for light, for salvation, for deliverance, for hope in this life, and it's through belief in Jesus Christ. The challenge for you this morning is to let go of your own works, your own efforts to please God, your own efforts to earn your way to God and simply believe that Jesus, the Son of God, died for your sins and rose from the dead. When you place your faith in that message of the gospel, you become a child of light. You are filled with light and now you can begin to radiate light to this dark world. Now, how do we do that? How do we radiate light to the world? Well, verse 16 really gives us the answer. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works. We emanate light to this world through good deeds. This is similar to the idea of being salty salt. As we practice the values and behaviors of the Sermon on the Mount, as we do good to others, true good, real good, we act as light. We are lights to this world through our actions. This is one of the reasons that we need to obey the Lord Jesus, that we need to practice the Sermon on the Mount. It's only as we practice the Sermon on the Mount that we serve as lights in this world. It's through our deeds that we emanate light. And yet notice, it's not just through our deeds. Our deeds are not enough. If we finish verse 16, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our good deeds must be accompanied with words with words that point people to the one true source of light. The ultimate reason that we're on this planet is so that God might be glorified. At the end of the day, everything is for the glory of God, that God would be made famous. That's the idea of glory, that he would be lifted up and exalted, that people would come to praise God, to acknowledge that he is who he says he is, that they would stand before him in awe as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Now, the only way for them to stand before God in awe is if we back up our good deeds with words about God. If we point all the glory to him, we're doing good deeds not so that we look good, but so that God looks good. When I serve people at work, when I'm charitable, when I'm merciful, when I'm a person of humility and people see that, I need to immediately point the praise to God. I'm doing this because of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why I can act mercifully. Let me tell you why I can be a charitable and giving person. Let me tell you why I obey the Sermon on the Mount and and don't lust. I don't look at pornography. I don't go to a strip club. Why do I do that? Not because it makes me look good but because I want to glorify Jesus Christ. Why do I give my money away rather than hoarding it on earth? Not so that I look good, not so that I earn brownie points, but because I believe that God is worth it, that Jesus is worth it. I want to give it to him. So as you do good deeds, point people to the author of good deeds, to the author of light, to God. It's only as we have both words and deeds that God is glorified and that we serve as lights in this world. But notice one more thing about this metaphor. The only way for us to radiate this light is if we do it in the sight of unbelievers. Jesus says very clearly, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. If if you put a lamp under a basket, it won't do anybody any good. It's not casting light to those who need light. The only way for us to serve as lights in this world is to engage the world. This This is actually really helpful. There's an an error that a lot of Christians commit based on that salt metaphor. What is the easiest way to be salt? What is the easiest way to retain our flavor as salty salt? Well, never leave the salt shaker. 
Stay right here within these walls. Hang out only with Christians. If I hang out only with people who obey the Lord, then there'll be nothing to lead me away. There'll be nothing to water me down. There'll be no temptation to lose my saltiness. Just stay with other believers. And yet Jesus is saying, no, it's not enough to just be salt that stays in the salt shaker. You can't fulfill your purpose on earth if you're only hanging out with other believers. You are salt meant to flavor the world, meant to get out there into the world. You're light meant to cast the radiance of God's glory to this dark planet. The only way for you to do that is to do it in the sight of unbelievers. God is calling us. This is, this is so beautiful that these two images come together because they really, they correct the two biggest errors that the church in America has made over the last hundred years. As we've interacted with a hostile culture, churches have either tended to lose all their distinctiveness and just blend into society at large or erect really tall fences. Really tall fences between them and the world. Draw back and just hang out with one another. That's the two ways we're tempted to respond and Jesus says, don't go either. You can't just be salt. You can't just be light. You need to be salt and light. You need to retain your distinctiveness as those who follow the ethics of the kingdom, those who follow the king in the ser- through the Sermon on the Mount. But at the same time, you need to practice the Sermon on the Mount in view of the world, engaging unbelievers so that you can show them the glory of God. That's the only reason you're here. If you stay only in church, you're of no good to this planet. You might as well be in heaven. You're not fulfilling any good in this planet if you're only hanging out with believers. We're to be both salt and light. That's the goal that Jesus lays out to us. As I've worked through this sermon, as I've uh, chewed on these images and metaphors, it's been a very personal sermon for me, a very personal passage this week. Uh, we've had an interesting week with our kids. It's probably a good time to give you guys an update. It's turned four months, and uh, something really interesting is happening with my kids. Um, it's Luke on the left, Gracie on the right. Uh, I feel like this week, really at the beginning of the week, was the first time that Julie and I made it past uh, the goal of uh, keep our kids alive. For, for about four months, is, you know, they were born premature. We had issues with, with feeding and sleeping and really weren't sure if they were going to stay alive and we were going to stay alive. It was really touch and go there for a while. It's a little crazy. Um, finally, I feel like this week, they've gotten past the stage of just keep them alive and they have begun to interact with their world. They've begun to turn into people, little people. They're actually looking at me in these pictures. We actually speak in whatever language they can then speak. They actually smile at one another. They're starting to engage with one another. All of a sudden, life isn't just about keep my kids alive. And, and so as I've worked on this passage, I've honestly, I've not really been thinking about how to give this to you guys. That's not where I've been where my mind has been this week. It's been about my kids. Okay, my kids are past the survival stage. That means it's time for me to become a father. Now it's really the hard part. Now, now I got to begin to raise them. I got to begin to train them. It's not just enough to keep them alive. I have to begin leading them to become the little boy and the little girl that God designed them to be, that Jesus wants them to be. So as I studied this passage this week, it's really, it's not so, been so much about you guys. It's been about my kids. This is my goal for my kids. What do I want my kids to become? A lot of parents have a lot of goals. They want them to be Ivy Leaguers. They want them to be great at sports. They want them to be influential people, whatever it is. My, my goal for my kids is really simple. It's, it's this passage. I want Luke and Grace to be salt and light in the world. I'm a success as a father if I train my kids up to be salt that is distinctive in its flavor and light that is visible for all to see. If they become salt and light, then I'm a success. That's what my hope is, my prayer is for Luke and Grace. We actually named Luke Luke because Luke in Greek means bearer of light. 
That's, that's the idea for our kids. We want them to reflect the distinctive flavor of the kingdom of God, to practice the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, contrary to the rest of the world, and at the same time be engaged with the world, be radiating the light of God's glory to this world. That's our goal for them. That, that is really our goal for all of us. What are we as a church to become? We are to become salt and light in this world. That's God's reason for Grace Bible Church existing. We're not here to take up space. We're not here to build fancy buildings. We're here to be salt and light. So let me leave you with a few applications to think about. Number one, from the salt metaphor, uh, I challenge you this week to spend some time reflecting on your life, thinking about your life, and asking yourself prayerfully, honestly, Lord, where are places where I have conformed to this world? Where are there places in my life, where are there actions, where are there attitudes, where are there patterns of thought that I have allowed myself simply to become like this world? I've simply given in to the ways of this world. Think about your life and compare yourself to people who are not believers in your life. If you were lined up next to the unbelievers that you work with or go to school with or that are in your neighborhood, would people see a difference in your life? Or would you look just like them? Would, would a person look at your life and say, you do the same things they do? If that's the case, then, then you're not salt. You've lost your flavor as salt. Unfortunately, that's true of, of much of the church in America. When you look at any measurable statistics, the rate of divorce, the incidence of pornography, the, the prevalence of, of anxiety and worry and things like that, when you look at any statistics that you can measure and you compare those who go to church and those who don't, there's very little statistical difference, unfortunately. So many believers, so many people who call themselves Christians in this country look just like the rest of the world. They've lost their saltiness. So this week I challenge you, look at your life. Do you stand out? When someone compares you to the fellow student in your class who's not a believer, is there something different about you? Something attractive? Something that people stand up and say, wow, there's something different about you. Are you distinctive? Or are there areas in your life where you've conformed to the world? The challenge to us is in those areas where we've conformed to the world, we need to make some changes. We need to step back and say, I may need to cut some things out of my life. I may need to change some things. I may need to get some help in some areas. The goal of life is to be distinctive, to be a follower of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. So spend some time looking at your life this week. If you want a tool in your reflection, do read chapters 5 through 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at them, read them, read what Jesus reveals about his expectations of his people. Do these expectations characterize your life? Are these qualities found in your life, these countercultural qualities and characteristics? Second question that I want us as a church to think about is how can we be more visible as a light? If you are just hanging out with other believers, then you're not serving your purpose on earth. There's really no reason for you to stay on earth because all you're doing is hanging out with the rest of the salt and the rest of the light. You need to get out there and be a light to the world. Are there ways that you could make yourself more visible to those who are in the darkness? Are there ways that you can engage with your neighbors or your coworkers or your peers at school who don't yet know Jesus Christ? Maybe it's to, to go to lunch with some people who don't know Jesus Christ. Maybe it's to, to put on a dinner in your neighborhood and invite your neighbors who don't know him over. Maybe it's to serve, to do good deeds to some of these different people. It's really interesting when you look at the ministry of Jesus, who is he spending his time with? wasn't just with religious people. It was with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. He was out there in the midst of the sinfulness of the world, the darkness of the world being a light. That's his charge to us. Are you engaging the world? Are you visible? 
If not, look for new ways. Pray, God, show me how to be visible in this world. Show me how to be a light to those who are in the darkness. That's the second thing I want you to consider. Third thing, I'll bring it home for parents. Are we helping our kids become both salt and light in this world? Think over the last 30 years, there's been a lot of sweat, a lot of blood, a lot of ink spilled over the debate between public school, private school, homeschool for my kids. How do we resolve that debate for our kids? Which of those is best? Well, guess what? None of them are best. The way that you make the decision for your kid is you ask, what of those options is best for my child at this moment in his or her life to help them become both salt and light? If your child would be carried away if he went to public school, he's not ready to stand on his own yet. He's not ready to be salt. He's not mature enough in his faith. Well, then you may need to protect him more. You may need to surround him with other believers for a while so he can grow in maturity. On the other hand, if your child has grown in maturity, they're doing a great job as salt, but you look at, your, at their lives and they are, have no relationships with unbelievers. Well, you're robbing your child of the opportunity to be a light in the world. You're robbing them of the opportunity to fulfill their purpose on earth. They're called to be both salt and light. We need to be willing to push our children out there. Once they're ready to stand as salt, we need to push them out so that they can be light to those in the darkness. So are you creating opportunities for your child to build relationships with kids who don't know Jesus so they can reflect Jesus and glorify God as a result? It's not one of those options, public, private, or home, that's best. It's what's best for your child at this time in their development to be both salt and light. Let's train our children to be salt and light in this world. That's why we're here. It's the only reason we're still on this rock is to be salt and light to the glory of God the Father. Now we do have a neat opportunity coming up real soon. We're going to talk a lot about this in the coming month. We have our second annual Easter extravaganza coming up in preparation for this Easter. It's going to be Thursday, April 1st. Again, I'll have a lot more information for you, but you do reserve that date. Thursday, April 1st. Thursday right before Easter right before Good Friday, actually. Um, Here at Southwood, we're going to have a huge event. We're going to have all kinds of things for families. Um, We're going to have, Ross King's going to do a big concert with his new album, which is going to be really fun. We're going to do some Easter egg hunts, have bounce houses. We're going to serve free pizza, I believe, all kinds of fun things. Um, So if you have kids, bring your kids. It'll be really fun. If you have neighbors, which I think all of us do, invite your neighbors, bring them. This is an excellent opportunity for them to come. We'll make the gospel very, very clear at both the level of kids and adults. So bring your neighbors. uh, Come and help serve. Come and and serve people who come here. Show them your love through your good deeds. And then finally, uh, use this Easter extravaganza as just the beginning of an opportunity to show light to those who don't yet know Jesus. The the ideal, here's really our, our goal for this event, our hope, our prayer for this event, is that you would invite somebody from school or from work or from your neighborhood that doesn't know Jesus to this event. And they would come and it would just be an easy first thing. They would have fun with their kids. Everybody would have a good time. But that you would then follow up in the weeks that come. Okay, so Easter extravaganza happens. But then maybe two weeks later, you take them to dinner or you bring them dinner or something like that. And you hang out with them and you begin to build that relationship. And a couple weeks after that, you babysit for them or you serve them in some way. Use the Easter extravaganza as a first step towards building relationships with people who are in the dark so that you can be salt and light to them. 
So again, Thursday, April 1st, please save that date. This is the biggest evangelistic outreach our church does in the course of the year. We really want this to be an excellent tool for you to allow you to be salt and light to those who don't yet know Jesus. Let's pray for God to help us to use this event and everything that we do to glorify him as salt and light. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for sending your son Jesus. We confess he is the one and only source of light in this world. Without Jesus, we would be utterly without hope. We would be lost in our sins. We would be absolutely in the dark. Thank you so much for providing uh, salvation through Jesus, through his death and resurrection. Thank you now that we can be salt and light because Jesus died for us. I pray, Father, that as we go through this week and we go through this month, that we would be salt and light in this world, that we would be distinct as your followers by practicing the commands of Jesus Christ, that we would delve into the Sermon on the Mount, that we would learn from it, Lord, that we would be convicted by it, that we would align our lives with it so that we can reflect your glorious righteousness and holiness to this world. I pray that we would be this salt, this distinctive salt that you want us to be. I pray at the same time, Lord, that we would be visible light to those in our lives, that we would not only hang out with believers, that we would not withdraw behind the walls of the church, but that we would step out in faith and engage our neighbors and coworkers and peers who don't know you. I pray that we would be light to them, Lord. I pray that we would boldly share the gospel with them. I pray that we would do good deeds in their sight, that we would serve them and love them in these radical ways that Jesus talks about. And that as we do that, we would point them to you, that we would back up our deeds with words that bring all the glory to you. Please, Father, help us to become salt and light. Help us to fulfill the purpose for which you have us here on this earth. We pray particularly for our Easter extravaganza coming up, Lord, that you would use it as an incredible outreach to this community. We pray that many would come to find out what the true meaning of Easter is, the hope and beauty and salvation that are found in the celebration of Easter. We pray, Lord, that many would be drawn to Jesus Christ, that we would be faithful to use this event um, and to glorify and honor you. Thank you so much for this day and for your son above all else. In his name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you, and please do save that date, April 1st.